The Letter That Changed the World, Part 26. Can people be zealous for God and reject him at the same time? Romans 9, 30 to 10, 13. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. And you wonder what does he mean by that? Were they all just constantly wanting to be bad? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. He's going to explain himself. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law. The Gentiles didn't have that. That's what he means when he said they didn't produce righteousness. They didn't have the law to try and keep. And Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. And the question is, why, verse 32? Well, the Jews didn't attain first because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And what he means by that, remember Jesus would come to the Jews and he would constantly want to offer them eternal life. And he would say, don't even start saying you have Abraham as your father, because that's what they relied on. Their Jewishness, descendants of Abraham. That's what he means by works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. This is Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's offensive to the Jewish people then and now, official Judaism, because because it bespeaks of a righteousness that doesn't come from being descendants of Abraham, and that's very hard for them to swallow. Stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, 10.1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's the Jews, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So the question is, can people be zealous for God and reject him at the same time? That's the title. Now we're getting to the answer. Verse 3 of chapter 10. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, he's talking about Jesus now, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And he makes it clear now. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes, righteousness comes by believing. Circle believes. For Moses, he's thinking of the Jewish people, and it's good. He goes right to Moses. He writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. I'll explain those hard verses. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Believes, justified. How does a person get justified? Believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now he's going to say it. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. This is for everybody. Abraham's descendants, not Abraham's descendants. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There are some issues that just kind of keep popping up to the surface in Paul's discussion in his letter to the Romans. And one of the chief ones is this striking contrast. He's constantly contrasting these two people groups. The Jews who were given so many advantages, handpicked for special attention, repeated deliverance by God himself, supplied with the law for their instruction, the sacrificial system and the priesthood for their sins and their failings, and finally the very womb of Israel through whom the Messiah would be born, and yet for all those blessings, Israel rejected the Messiah when he appeared on the scene. Stunning. Then there were the Gentiles. They were given none of these blessings directly. They weren't even pretending to keep the laws that God gave to the Jewish people because they didn't have them. And yet, says Paul, 930, they were attaining righteousness. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. They didn't pursue it with the law, circumcision, uh, the sacrificial, they didn't pursue it with any of those things, but they still attained it. And all of that leads Paul to deal with our wonderment at just how these things can be. How did the Jews miss it? How did the Gentiles attain it? That's the issue. We simply can't imagine how shocking this was and how disturbing this was to the Jewish mind. It raised such huge questions about everything they had come to believe, so much so that Paul actually has to address the faithfulness of God in that sixth verse of chapter 9. He says, but it's not like the word of God has failed. God didn't lie. Let's trace some of Paul's thoughts in this passage. One, somehow the sovereign grace of God does not diminish the factor of human response. I get that in 30 to 33. What shall we say then? You got, you got to sort this out. That's what Paul is saying. The Jews not attaining it, the Gentiles attaining it. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Well, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, quote, Behold, I am laying a a, in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those opening words are not new to us. What shall we say then? That's Paul's typical way when he's launching into a difficult subject. In verses 25 to 29 of chapter 9, Paul quoted two Old Testament texts proving God's awareness and prediction of the inclusion of the Gentiles. That's in verses 25 and 26 as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. These weren't Jews. They weren't Abraham's descendants. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said of them, you are not my people, 
There they will be called sons of the living God. Not a new thing. God always predicted this. And Paul also had an Old Testament quote about the exclusion of many Jews. In Romans 9.29, he says, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. And that's the Jewish people he's talking about. And so because of those two shocking revelations, Paul opens this section the way he does. What shall we say? How can these things possibly be? And here's the most important point for this whole section. If you miss everything else tonight, the determining factor in each destiny, Gentile and Jew, the determining factor in each destiny is the factor of faith alone. There is no justification by election. There is justification by faith, belief. People either exercise faith or they don't. And, and this factor of human response it is the sole factor settling the issue of redemption. The dominant Jewish response was pride. Pride in being descendants of Abraham. Pride in being the receivers of the law. Instead of understanding the purpose of the law, possession of the law became a, a hood ornament, a religious badge, a membership card to prove their superiority over the Gentiles. And this, you will remember, is exactly why Paul was forced to remind them that it wasn't having the law that made them righteous, but obeying the law in faith. That's way back in this letter in Romans 2, verses 17 to 23. Paul writes, thinking of the Jews now, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law to boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols... Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. And so Paul just exposes this contradiction in the Jewish position. They had pride in being the people of the law, but they couldn't. They couldn't fulfill the law. Or in the words of today's text, even though they knew they didn't keep the law, yet they still pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. 931. As though it were based on works. 932. How did the Gentiles find righteousness? That's a key question for Paul to answer because if righteousness came through the law, well, then the Gentiles, they never would have attained it. They missed it. Yet Paul clearly says they did reach righteousness. Look at that 30th verse. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. So here's how it worked. The Gentiles, not having the law, at least this much, they did not have the disadvantage of looking for righteousness in the wrong place. 
They couldn't count on any special status or relationship to the law of God because they were never given the written law of God. So they couldn't boast in any of those things. They were forced to rely on their conscience. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 1 and 2. This inner witness that they had somehow failed God. They had no religious props. They had no distractions. Nothing to divert their attention from Christ when he was proclaimed to them. And that's the key issue. The key issue of today's text, the hub of the wheel, is Romans 9.33. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. God knew that Christ would be a stumbling stone right off the bat. And a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So for Jew and Gentile, the issue is Christ. It's the most important point in the whole text. Is there anything wrong in trying to be a good person with the law? Is it a sin to try and obey God's laws? No. Absolutely it's not. No one should be indifferent to personal righteousness, Jew or Gentile. But the law of God, it must never prevent, it must never be used to keep anyone from Christ. That's why Paul, he he goes back to Isaiah who originally says it, and then Paul quotes it, Christ being this stone of stumbling and this rock of offense. See, the the law can breed a pride, an arrogance, a self-sufficiency that doesn't look to Christ. And at that point, the whole intent of the law has been distorted. He said, Jesus said he was the fulfillment of all of it. He walks with the two on the road to Emmaus, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explains all things concerning himself, the text says. It was all about Jesus, right from Abraham on. Point number two. It's important to note that people who are zealous for God still need to be saved. In chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, Paul writes, Brothers, he's writing to his Jewish brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's what he wants. Verse 2, I bear them witness that they, they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Remember that sentence. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's going to be really important in about two minutes. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What's God's righteousness? He explains. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now here's the issue. You've heard it asked a thousand times, and maybe you wonder about it yourself. What is the fate of those who have never heard of Christ? And where books and commentaries and scholars deal with that is at the end of the 10th chapter. But I think that's too late. I think this is where Paul actually touches on it, and I want to show you why I think that. Paul raises that issue and settles it in these opening verses, 10, 1 to 4, the ones I just read. Paul prays for them, his Jewish brothers. He prays for them to be saved. Notice this now. He prays for them to be saved in verse 1. 
My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Right? That's what he's saying. I want them all saved. Must be a place where the notes turn over. Okay. Then he describes their present zeal for God in verse 2. I'm not doing tricks here. You can see it clear as a bell. Verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So Paul wants them all saved. All right? He wants them all saved. He says they they have a zeal for God, these people. I want them all saved. Verse 1. They have a zeal for God. Clear as a bell. They have a zeal for God in verse 2. In other words, Paul never assumes that their zeal for God produces salvation. Am I right? You can't get around that. I want them all saved. Verse 1. I want them all saved. They have a zeal for God. Verse 2. Does that produce salvation? Do you answer the question? No. No. He wants them to be saved. They have a zeal for God. What do they lack? Well, they lack a knowledge of Christ, right? That's what they're missing. That's the missing component. In other words, he never assumes their personal hunger for righteousness delivers salvation. He never assumes that their zeal for God all by itself is redemptive. That's for Jews, that's for Gentiles, that's for uh, all the religions on planet Earth. The end, the goal, the target of all our hungers, all our aspirations for God and righteousness is a knowledge of Christ. And Christ saves, it would appear from the wording in these verses, not generically, not passively, not because of one's being a descendant of Abraham or anything else but through believing in him. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I can't say on that. I wish I could. Point number three. Paul then cites these Old Testament texts revealing the futility of legal righteousness and the importance of faith. I get that in verses 5 through 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. And these are these really tricky verses now. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith. So you see this contrast here. The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word, the old covenant. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, a really brief summary of this tricky passage, it would go something like this. So chapter 9, verse 30, to chapter 10, verse 3, that deals primarily with the failure of the Jews to find righteousness through the law. That's the theme there. And then in 10, 
verse 4, it holds out the beauty of the simplicity of faith in Christ, the end of the law, who opens salvation to all who believe. That's in verse 4. Okay, then in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 10, Paul turns his attention more directly to the inclusion of the Gentiles, proving that salvation is indeed for all who believe. And the way Paul addresses this centrality of faith is to demonstrate from the Jewish Old Testament. Justification by faith is not a new idea. It's not something foreign to God's calling and covenant with Abraham. It was through Abraham that all the nations of the earth, not the Jews, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Paul wants to prove his own continuity with God's whole plan of salvation right from the beginning, from its Jewish Old Testament roots. So verse 5 explains more fully verse 4. If salvation through Christ is for all who believe, that's in verse 4, then it's a terrible mistake not to put saving faith in Christ. So, verse 5 bursts the hope of any other approach to righteousness. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Well, can that work? We should know the answer from previous studies in Romans. Can I, if I just keep the law perfectly, will that get me to heaven? And the answer is no. Here's why. In verses we've already studied, that kind of righteousness, it's great on paper, but it, it can't be done. Do you see Romans 3, 19 and 20? Is that in your notes? Now we know <laughs> that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here's where the law is going to take you. You might think you're going to keep it. Here's where it will take you. 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's not encouraging news. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. What's the law do? Well, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It exposes me. If I try and keep it and I'm relatively successful, it exposes my pride. If I try to keep it and fail, it exposes my disobedience. Either way, I'm a sinner. You can't win. path that remains then, if one is going to be saved at all, has to come along different lines altogether. And the main thrust of this string of related Old Testament texts is that God has not placed salvation along lines that are hard to reach. You don't climb up into heaven to bring Christ and grace down. You don't tunnel through the earth as though obstacles have to be removed. No, the word, 10.8, the word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. God has come to us. He has come near to us. He has spoken Salvation is as near as my awareness of my own sin, as my awareness of God's need, my need for God's mercy and grace. That's what Paul has in mind when he says in 10.4, Christ is the end of the law. This is where it's all pointing. It's all pointing to Jesus Christ for Jew and for Gentile. Point number four. 
and we're almost done now. I'm trying to get in practice for those uh, Sunday nights, May 26th and forward. I've got to speak in 25 minutes. My wife doesn't think I can do it. Point four, Jew and Gentile are alike in their need to call upon the name of Jesus. 10, 9 to 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Jew or Gentile, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That is a huge sentence. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. How much of a distinction is there between Jew and Gentile? How much? Zero. Zip. None. Nada. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I have three things about 30 seconds on each one. First, in those verses, Jesus is Lord. He's distinct from teachers or prophets. That same word, Lord, that's applied to Jesus is consistently used for God in the Old Testament. So getting his identity right is not optional if you're going to be saved. Secondly, he's risen from the dead, verse 9. So our minds are immediately pressed into another kingdom. It's not an earthly Jewish theocracy. It's an eternal kingdom for all the nations in a new creation. Third, all must call upon the Lord because there's no distinction between peoples in Jesus Christ. Such an obvious deduction isn't from the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Such a Lord is not limited to any particular tribe or race. He's bigger than life itself. And death itself can't snuff out God's plan to save. That was a lot of ground to cover. Are you, are you okay? You got a headache? 